welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 378 and the final episode emanating from those who presented at this past year's PASIC 2023. Here's our conversation with Los Angeles-based freelance percussionist and the owner and creator of Splat Boom Band Percussive Storytelling, Corey Hills. Let's get right to it. Corey's been active as a performer for a long time and has a pretty incredible story, which you'll get to hear. Corey will talk to us about his background and grounding in percussion while growing up in Virginia and his years at Northwestern with Michael Burrett. You'll also get to hear about the pivot his career took when he spent two years abroad, one year studying with Vanessa Tomlinson in Australia and a second as a fellow with the Fabrica Institute hosted by the Benetton Group in Italy. And you'll hear a lot about his work in percussive storytelling. It is really quite impressive. Additionally, Corey was part of PASIC 2023, doing a session on percussive storytelling and presenting one of his many one-person storytelling shows. Unfortunately, due to scheduling, I was unable to attend, but I heard from many sources that it both went very well and was very well attended. And I hope for more of these types of events at PASIC in the future. One last item, Corey is a very funny, interesting, and opinionated fellow. I think that will come across in this interview, so let's hear it. We recorded this over Zoom on November 2nd, 2023, and it begins right now. It's part of the Interactive Drumming Committee a showcase concert through them, and it's presenting a program of mine called Frankie the Otter. Um, I'm not bringing an otter. Well, I am. It's just, it's stuffed. It's, it's not a real otter. Uh, Can you well, imagine that's just... the insurance for PAS to bring like a live otter inside the exhibition hall? That would be... Also, imagine the stories for decades after about yeah. the guy Do you who remember brought the otter. That guy who brought an otter. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's called Frankie the Otter, and I have to back up to tell you a bit about what it is. It's part mm-hmm. of a program of mine called Percussive Storytelling that I created about fifteen years ago. And in percussive storytelling, I tell stories to kids that I either write or adapt from existing. Uh, folk tales, multicultural tales from around the world. And I set them to percussion music that I compose. So it's kind of like Peter and the Wolfish, but more in the 21st century or 22nd, wherever the heck we are. It's Thursday. Um, (laughs) Just with a little more of a modern slant and more of a focus on connecting the music to the stories and presenting them to elementary school age children. That's the primary audience. I mean, it works for younger, it works for older, but the core demographic would be elementary age children. So it's perfect for attendees of PASIC because most percussionists have the uh, maturity level of a third grader. So I think it's, uh, you know, it, it fits perfectly. Yeah. I've been doing this for a long time, but Frankie the Otter specifically is a program I created when um, just about a year or two ago when I was the first ever fellow in children's music at the Fred Rogers Institute. And that's Mr. Mm. Rogers, that guy. Yeah. Everyone's favorite neighbor. So this fellowship, which was just amazing, granted me access to his archives and 
I was able to talk to people who worked with him, worked on the show, created characters. And I spent the year sort of doing a deeper dive into the social emotional learning side of things as compared to just telling stories I liked. Mm-hmm. And Frankie the Otter is the performative result of that. It's a 50 minute show and it features four stories, a lot of bad jokes. It's kind of like Frankie, it, Frankie's the main character. And yeah, so it's interactive in terms of the audience gets involved um, by acting out different roles. I mean, at PASIC, everyone has to pretend to be a kid, obviously. But in reality, I go to these schools and present this show to 500 plus kids at a time. And it's a lot of fun. I've been, like I said, I've been doing this for 15 years and it's been a bit of a grind, especially getting recognized by the percussion community for being a real form, a real (laughs) thing as compared to just pandering or playing to kids. Right. Right. Um, I believe that there's, there's an art there. And so to be given this opportunity to present it, 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 it's awesome because there's so many opportunities outside of percussion that's not being a professor or an orchestral musician. And this is how I do it. And so I'm excited to present that to people because there are a lot of opportunities out there in this area, in education, in early education. Is that typically one the a group that that like I guess drum circles might be the thing that people might be most connects with that committee or is, is it has it always been kind of included this you know the, the- theatrical element that you you're including here I, that is a wonderful question <laughs> I definitely do not have the answer I you know so I've tried to apply before to other committees and I I get thrown in sometimes in, in, in the professional setting, they're like, Oh, so like drum circle type stuff or facilitation. And it's not that Mm -hmm. because the kids and I, when we work together, we write our own children's stories. We set them to music. We play all these instruments, we compose. So it's not interactive in the call response drum circle kind of way. Yeah. Um, but it is interactive in terms of us kind of getting down on the ground, working together, creating some cool sounds, writing some stories. So I think it is a good fit. And I'm happy that they, you know, they extended a, a branch this way. With a show like this that you, you're, you've put together 50 minutes, what was kind of the creation of this particular show? Oh, Frank, okay. So Frankie, the premise is pretty simple. Uh, there's like a tagline. It's a show about uh, uh, friendship, kindness, and the power of community. So that's pretty much the the bio tagline of the show. The setting's simple. Frankie is new to my animal sanctuary, which is basically just a bunch of stuffed animals, mm-hmm. uh, because their habitat was destroyed in a storm, and so they're new. And then on their first during their first day at the sanctuary, they meet different animals each animal telling Frankie a different story about their first day to help Frankie feel more uh, comfortable and at ease in this new home. And each of the stories focuses on a different social emotional concept, but it's kind of hidden a bit in the dialogue, in the story, because the stories are from all over the world, 
purposefully done that way because of my research with Mr. Rogers, how he never lectured at you. He -hmm. just presented this stuff, spoke to you as an individual and let you sort of take it where you wanted to take it. That's where the influence sort of, sort of comes from. Um, So yeah, that's, that's kind of the setting of the story and the percussion is my vessel to, tell the stories right. or to reach this audience. It's simply the tool I use to do it. One of the things that, that I would, I would like for you to talk about on, on this is kind of what are the skill sets that maybe we are or are not part of a traditional curriculum <laughs> that are, that you've developed because of doing this work for the last 15 years. <laughs> ah, how long do you got? <laughs> um, everything. I, I, like I, I, uh, I had the most incredible education. Mm-hmm. I, I can't complain at all. Um, except Michael Burrett, I will complain about how many double laterals I had to continuously play up and down the instrument. Double laterals. I mean, seriously, open fifths. Can we stop with the open fifths? I just, it drives me crazy. I know I had, I had the best education, so I, I I was so fortunate in all of my studies. However, as I got older and found that my brain, well, actually, it was more from early on. I knew I wasn't, I didn't want to be an orchestral musician. I knew some of these things I didn't want. Mm-hmm. What I can say, though, is as I got older, I realized that we're kind of like teaching to the 2%. We're not teaching to everyone else. So we're we're telling people that it makes the way that we're teaching. It's like you either get an orchestral job or or a professorial job. And that's what you do. That's 98% of the work, but it's, it's like reverse. I remember doing like looking at stuff one year, about 10 years ago and calculating how many people had doctorates who could get the job, but based on it's like 2%. So we're, we're teaching to this small little, Thing, which is great because it, in some ways it's great. It it's it requires certain skill sets, and we must be great at our craft. But when you get out into the real world, there are a ton of jobs. There is a ton of work. It just might not look like how mm-hmm. you're originally told it would look. Right. So, a lot of the skills I had, but I hadn't put together, and then in terms of business, uh, a zero. You learn as you go. Yeah. You write down what didn't work. That's what I did. Yeah. I, and that relates a little bit to a, kind of a follow-up, which is when you're writing these and creating these presentations for the age you're creating it for, how much of what you're doing is is editing, is, is, is pushing something and going, huh, that was great, or nope move on to the next thing. How much of that are you doing? Constantly. I did my undergrad at Northwestern during the Michael Burrett era where we existed on coffee and red hots for like four years. Um, And, you know, I was there with like the third coast guys, a bunch of other, I mean, it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. And so I came out of there knowing how to play everything, but really wanting something else. And I received 
an amazing opportunity to go to Australia to study with Vanessa Tomlinson, who is a Steve Schick, former mm-hmm. Steve Schick student, UCSD, experimental art. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, man, this woman is the best of the best. I came out of that program have becoming more of like a, an improviser, focusing more on new music, avant-garde, chamber music, pushing boundaries, and definitely theatrical percussion. That was what I was doing. And from there, I went to Italy for a year for a research fellowship at United Colors of Benetton's Think Center called Institute Fabrica. It's a clothing company, but they Mm -hmm. own a... And this was a year of art for art's sake. I mean, I'm talking like European high fill in the blank. And while it was really fun, this was the year I noticed a big disconnect between my voice and the audience. I was getting a little pissed off because, you know, you'd prep for months for these things. And then like three people would show up, your roommate, um, usually your boss or your teacher, right? And then the crazy dude who shows up to everything. Cause there's always one, there's always one. And um, I love sometimes, sometimes you're it. Sometimes you are, sometimes you are the the crazy person or, (laughs) and, and so I would get angry uh, in, in terms of like, why? I vo- they should, they should, they should. And then I realized years later that I was putting my voice in the wrong place, that they weren't showing up, not because they didn't like me, but because my voice was incorrect for the setting. And so when I was there that year, I wrote one story called The Lost Bicycle. Um, it's about a lost bicycle. Good title, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think happens in the end of the story? Uh, you, you got this. Find the yes, party. they do. Wow, yeah. yeah, I know. I'm not exactly J.K. Rowling over here, but I try my best. But uh-huh. I set it to music. I added percussion, and I it 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 was just it was cool. I really really liked it. Mm. But then I I sort of tucked it away, came back to the U.S. and you know was going to take New York or fill in the blank city by storm as this like crazy new music collaborative percussionist and um that didn't happen (laughs) i did lots of cool things and i still do lots of cool classical things but um what happened was i was in kansas doing my doctorate and i got a call from someone who worked with like a choir in a church Mm -hmm. in osawatomie kansas which is where james not james brown uh Jim Brown did his uprising or something. It, it, yeah. A lot of sketchiness out in that area. Okay. And I, they, they were doing a family day and they wanted some sort of cool music thing. And this person who worked with the choir had heard that I had a story or I had done whatever. I end up going there playing this story. It was cool. Collect you $200. Do not cross go. And this is when every single day, when I, I would do multiples on many days, I would take notes about what worked, what didn't work, worked, what didn't work. And I, I sort of, um, I don't know if you've ever read any Malcolm Gladwell, he's sort of a, a oh, yeah. psychologist, um, mm-hmm. really great writer, very, very clear thinker. Uh, the tipping point is yeah. what I refer to for this, in that I was in it, like completely in it, because I was performing so much so fast yeah in a short amount of time i come out the other side and i go whoa i 
kind of know I kind of have a thing. Yeah. This is a thing. Mm -hmm. And that was the tipping point for me professionally when I realized, okay, there is something here. People like this, there's mm -hmm. a need for it. And my voice feels different. Like it works in this setting. Yeah, it, exactly. Exactly. And so then I did more. I recorded a CD that in my friend's kids room, we ran cables down the hall. My other friend did the album artwork and it like landed on the Grammy ballot. So I don't know how that happened, but all of this stuff was very serendipitous timing wise um, because all of a sudden this, this little program was bigger and had, um, had some clout behind it, right? Sort of like building a resume. It had, it had some meat to it. The kids are my editors. They will raise hands and say, well, why that? Or, ha ha, you forgot that or this. And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. this is amazing. Hold on, let me write this down. Yes. And that's why after every show, I would write down what did not work. It's very easy to know what works, but what doesn't work is more important. And so you yeah. make changes. I would um, experiment in sections about pauses, too much percussion with no words versus too many words, no percussion. Because keep in mind, I'm coming at this as a percussionist, mm -hmm. not uh, a writer, not an actor. I'm a theatrical percussionist, but that does not mean I'm an actor. Um, geez, please, to all theatrical percussionists out there. We're drummers first, man, okay? So yeah, just yeah. easy on the acting side. That's when I, you know, I would see like, oh, I'm doing 70% percussion in this story. And they're getting kind of antsy because mm -hmm. I'm not talking enough. So I need to find that balance. And what about between the stories? How do I banter with the audience? How do I talk to the kids? Do I ask them questions? Do I let them come up and play something? How does this all work? Mm -hmm. So you experiment. Every single time you do something different, use the old scientific method. And fortunately for me, that summer, when I had so many shows, 130 shows, there's a lot of data at your disposal. And from there, I was able to figure out how to structure a roughly 45, 50 minute assembly show for K through fifth grade or in your state, however it's done. Sure. Um, I was able to figure out how that structure works, where you put certain types of stories. And then over the years, as I've composed more and more, I put my stories into different categories. I have the shorter, groovier stories that are more surface level, but mm -hmm. are really fun, great, like uh, palate cleanser type stuff, um, the drunken porter and Macbeth, right? And I have the longer, more lyrical stories that I can't put a whole, I can't put four of those on a show because my audience's attention will dip. Right. And then I have the sort of in-between ones, the ones that are maybe shorter than the lyrical. Um, I call them pattern based ones that um, use things like additive properties. So the turnip is one of my stories where the old man can't pull the turnip up. So the old woman pulls the old man, the grandson pulls the old woman, the dog, the cat, the mouse, right? And so the story builds. Um, and so I kind of have these categories. And because I know about the structure of the assembly in terms of when the kids come in, the excitement, the middle, 
right? How to kind of structure that. I plot my stories in based on that. And it, it's cool. It, it sort of works and um, sort of, I guess. And now I'm up to, I think, I think by uh, January or a little after I'll, I'll hit my thousandth show. Um, awesome. To about 220, 230,000 kids in 10 countries uh, two CDs, three children's books, and it's growing. It's growing in other ways that I had never foreseen. Um, and it's by attaching this not to the arts, sorry, arts, <laughs> uh, ELA, English language arts. Mm. So because my program has the storytelling side, because um, there is a, a language aspect to it, I get uh, funded in a different way because I'm not solely um, an arts entity because um, yeah. we know how much this country loves funding the arts. It's like their favorite. They just love right. it of so much. They're just throwing dollar bills. Yeah. Just singles. Singles it's only. Just, yeah. A lot of, lot of dimes. A lot of dimes and nickels. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. But all this stuff, like, as you said, like, how did you know this or, or how did it develop? Um, I knew none of this. Mm -hmm. I created a story because I was in the avant-garde world and was pissed that no one showed up to my shows. And yeah. now it's grown to a, a full-time business. Yeah. That's Funny awesome. how things work. All right. Well, let's uh, kind of move ahead here. So, Corey, give me a summation of you, – you'll have covered some of this already, but – summation of your percussion um, activities and anything you do you do related to the percussion field at this time? At this time. All right. So I live in Los Angeles where it's sunny. Yeah. I live in Los Angeles where I'm a freelance musician. So I do all kinds of uh, classical based projects playing with orchestras, operas, chamber groups. Um, I'm a member of the Los Angeles Percussion Quartet, um, have been for, I guess, close to 10 years or so. And so we've been playing out here and all around, uh, specifically focusing mainly on um, West Coast composers, California composers. And I also do session work. So recording for television, movies, um, albums, a ton of live shows playing with bands and whoever comes through town that needs music video game stuff i mean it's it's a it's la there's a lot of uh entertainment possibility <laughs> yeah and so i i do that out here and i also do percussive storytelling um which is my main business kind of venture in the in the percussion sense but i do not teach anywhere and i don't regularly play with any group it's just kind of a whatever, wherever you go next, wherever the phone call takes you. Yeah. Um, I love chamber music and probably more in line in this, in the LA and like the new music scene is where I probably fit best, if you will. Gotcha. How long have you been living in Los Angeles? I think it's about 10 years, 10 or 11 years. Gotcha. What, what prompted you to, to put your home there? <laughs> Uh, my my wife got a a job. I, oh, we actually okay, no cool. Yeah, just 
decided, let's let's do it. Let's see what it's like. And uh, she actually had a postdoc. Uh, she's in science, and so she had a postdoc um, fellowship to a school out here. And within like a few days, I had my first gig. The weather's incredible, and so we just sort of figured out how to how to keep it going. Look, uh, but going back to the percussive storytelling part, so you say that that's a business now. So how did, at what point did you realize that you needed to think, put that part in it like its own, I think, thing that you. Right. Yeah. Uh, pretty recently, and it's actually currently going on as we talk. Over the years have, as I've been a freelancer and percussive storytelling was one of those things that it, if I pushed into it, I would get a lot of work but I could also pull back because it was just me. Yeah. And so I stayed home with our two kids and also gigged at nights, weekends, and then occasional morning things. And that was many years. I mean, cause kids, they're, they're, they just stick around. They're just, they're just there. They don't, yeah. they don't leave, you know? Right. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of time doing that. And because I wasn't putting, so much time in or direct time, I, I just didn't become a business or focus on that side. After COVID, the phone calls that I was getting and, and the work that I'm doing currently is way different. Um, what happened is the COVID learning gap. So the COVID learning gap is essentially with whatever happened in 2020, 21, 22 with school, with how kids went to school or didn't go to school, they, they thought, and by they, I mean like the Department of Education specifically, thought that there would be a learning gap. Okay. So the gap was bigger than they thought, yeah. specifically in um, minority-based populations. And out here, that where I am, that's specifically Hispanic populations. Um, school districts that are 100% Hispanic, and they were th these kids were hit really hard by COVID. And they were finding fourth and fifth graders that couldn't read or write when they came back. And it's, it's, it's just really tough because parents are working multiple jobs. Um, there are a, are a lot in our area of migrant workers because um, we have a lot of farms um, in this area. <laughs> There's a bit of a, an issue, right? Mm -hmm. When you look at that gap and to combat that gap, this state, and federal level uh, threw money at it. So yes. they do. It's like, here, yeah. fix it. And they actually have done a really good job in my mind. What they've done is they took the after school childcare program. And most school districts have this for parents who either work late or maybe uh, in, I don't know, whatever. They have to pick mm -hmm. their kids up at a different time. Uh, childcare used to be a little more of a, homework and play. Yeah. And what they've done now is they've hired a bunch of people and they've structured it into sort of a, a session-based or rotation-based environment. So the kids get a healthy snack. They have homework help as a session. Then they go to these rotations and the rotations are like art. Uh, there's dance, there's hip hop dance, but there's also folklorica because uh, again, the Mexican population is, is huge here. Um, and music, right? And so this has prompted me though, because of the size of these contracts, and I don't say that to brag, I'm just saying 
there's a lot of work yeah. to the point where they have 17 in this one place has 17 elementary schools wow. five days a week. And they wanted me, my business in every single one. And I'm like, I'm one person. I, yeah. what? Yeah. And that's a fantastic problem to have, but it also taught me, okay, maybe I need to look at this a little more seriously Yeah. from a business standpoint to protect myself from uh, the insurance level, taxes, yada, yada, yada. So I'm kind of in the process of that right now. I have, I have very minor structure going on, mm -hmm. um, but over the years I've resisted the, uh, the urge or the um, recommendation to become a nonprofit simply because it's just me. I yeah. create stuff, I perform the stuff. And anytime you do that, you get a board involved. Right. And then, yeah. So, mm -hmm. but the business thing, man, like, man, I, I, if we had had a music industry class back in the day, mm -hmm. I, I think every percussionist I've ever met says, geez, I really wish we had a music business class or, mm. uh, or just a business class, like just, yeah. just not even music business, just general business. So we just are familiar with certain terms and procedures and just understand the basics, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I gotcha. And I agree. You know, you, I, I it's, it's interesting because you, you've kind of laid out that it seems like you can kind of create your schedule as needed, which to me would work really well, particularly if you're um, a primary parent, you know, that, yeah. that allowing kind of for that flexibility, did, did it allow you pandemic wise to kind of lean more into the storytelling aspect? Because I would assume that much of the gig work went away, right? Yeah. That you were, that you was probably part of your life before then, I would assume. Yes. Uh, and coincidentally, the storytelling picked up. Yeah. I did uh, Zoom shows from this garage mm. all over the country. Uh, it was awesome. They were schools, they were just in such need of any sort of creative problem solving to help yeah. the day, just to help everyone's day, week, month, year. It really didn't matter. And so, yeah, I think I did 93 shows. I rem yeah, I remembered that. And it was pretty cool. And to able to to have that access to these classrooms or schools right here on a yes. screen, um, mm -hmm. it, it was uh, it was pretty cool. And then that's when also doing a bit of a pause during COVID, I was able to analyze. That's also right around the time when I applied for the Fred Rogers um, fellowship, and <clears throat> it's when excuse me, when I did more of a, a deeper analytical dive into what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So the thing about this, as I mentioned before, is I was in the avant-garde world, created this, and it sort of blew up. But I didn't really know what I was doing. I was doing it, but not sure the reasons I was doing things, right. or the reasons why things worked and other things didn't. Yeah. So I had some time to, to dive into the research, um, child psychology, education-based research, um, uh, philosophies of education and also brain-based research to see how some of this, um, why some of this works. And that was really, really cool to, to kind of analyze it from more of an academic perspective and then make some changes appropriately. Um, and then also defend other 
decisions like, well, I know it's like this, but I'm going to do this uh, kind of thing. Yep. So COVID kind of allowed for that. And since then, I I also pivoted a bit from playing at schools that could afford to have me, basically the same middle class schools, right? to focusing more on either uh, low income areas or even special special needs places. Um, I've been working a ton with with children who are uh, neurodiverse, mm-hmm. and also uh, I'm working really hard on making it a bilingual program. I'm trying really hard mm-hmm. uh, to increase that access to these other communities, and that's what COVID kind of allowed me to do to take that time to to then pivot and find these areas. Um, yeah, to to sort of jump into. On the kind of the rights side of what you're doing, uh, is your work is it is it in a form that's people could buy, or is this like oh, a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like so? I, I'm just wondering how much of what you do is like written down and very specific, or is it yeah. a lot of like outlines, formats, and then you just kind of know that you have a lot of wiggle room with. Yeah. Um, so I actually released, I have one volume of notated stories at a, mm-hmm. a percussionist composer friend, Derek Tawaniak, who helped me because they are, they all exist in my head. And I have, I think I have like somewhere between 40 and 50 stories mm-hmm. and they all exist in my head because they're, I don't consider myself a composer. I still don't. It's like, I call myself like a composer they're all composed improvisations. Mm-hmm. That's how yeah. I refer to them. Yeah. Um, and so you, you were spot on when you said the wiggle room part, because yeah. there are, each story is, is sort of structured in a way that there are, if the audience is, let's say a younger audience or there it's right before lunch or whatever. And I have to contract some of the stories a bit, or right. maybe push through something to save 30 seconds here, 10 seconds there, or could have the opposite. There are, totally engaged and I can stretch things out. So all my stories are written that way with the exception of those groove based, really short, fun ones. Those are just set. Everything else is written where you can expand or contract as needed, Mm -hmm. but people were asking to play them, which was so weird. So I, I wrote a bunch down. It was really strange, but we came up with a way of sort of notating it. Um, and people are playing them. And I have more, I guess, to write down. Uh, it would, I guess it's cool. Uh, I, the stories themselves, everything's public domain. Nothing is, yeah. uh, you know, uh, the folk tales are stories that have been around for a long time. Or I've written stories in the style of existing folk tales from a region for example. So yeah, I do, I do have written some written down. It's, it's really weird to write them down. Mm, I, bet. But I also write for my instruments. Like this is such a personal project. Cause I, I'm yeah. not like, I write for my pitched woodblocks, my mm-hmm. pitch things. Like that's how yeah. I create this stuff. So it's so weird yeah. to like put it down and then listen to someone playing it on different instruments. And I go, Oh my gosh, that's actually cool. Or what yeah. is going on? Yeah. I, I was just imagining that there'd be uh, a time when you'd have like a, a, like you could make the triangle hit and just like, let that thing sit, 
you know, and you could tell like if the audience is raunchy to like really move on to the other instrument yes. or if you could yes. just like, you know, just kind of like give it the little. Yep. Dude, yep. there are moments. Absolutely. There's a moment in the turnip. Every time I say the word and it gets longer and longer and I hit the bell, but I pause before hitting the bell and they know it's coming and they start yelling at me to hit it. They're like, hit it. And, and then I, I like struggle to do it. But the, the reason that happened is the most popular part of any story I do in terms of the audience just laughing and yelling at me. Yeah. And it happened by accident. I was blowing through it like fast, fast, fast. And I couldn't find my triangle beater to hit the bell. Yeah. It was like stuck underneath a, like a cowbell. And so I like, I couldn't find it. And then I found it and said, and, and they lost it. They were laughing so hard. And now that's like built into that story every time. Um, totally, totally purposeful artistic choice, right? Uh, <laughs> I just couldn't find this stinking triangle beater. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there are those moments and I live for those moments because mm -hmm. the only way you find them is by experimenting. And so when right. I mentioned before about how I did so many shows and changing little things here and there, yeah. that's how you find those moments. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but other people find other ones and that's, that's also pretty cool. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's awesome. Um, for the other things that you do, are those, uh, uh, is, is any of that, or how regular can some of that be? Is that something that has kind of, I assume that it, maybe it's picking up again, but for, yeah, yeah. you know, what, what are the ways that, that those schedules tend to run? Like for instance, session work, if you're doing that, how what's is what's kind of a typical time frame? Is that like six hours and you're out and that's all we do kind of thing? Or usually three. Three, yeah. okay. Um, uh, you know, it, it honestly it depends. I'm not an A-lister out here, so I'm not on the. I'm not like first call for those yeah, things. Yeah. I've done a, a fair number, and uh, yeah, some are really, really, really structured, like the full orchestra type thing. Mm -hmm. And others were uh, just percussion or just a few other instruments in more of a tinkering mm -hmm. kind of format. It's all different. All depends on what the composer wants. Um, yeah, I've I've seen many many combinations. Uh, a lot of a lot of the composers will do like a well that I work with uh, will do a preliminary sort of mm -hmm. session. And they gather a lot of the sounds because they do a lot of electronic manipulation. And then you'll come back later for the score score part. I've seen many different <laughs> combinations. And yeah, yeah, sometimes they can run late. I, I remember doing music for Survivor once and it was like from one to 4 a.m. Because right. it's 24 seven lockout and like, yeah, yeah. you know what you get. And I remember, yeah, right. I, remember I remember this because uh, we were just recording all these um, like cues so just little yeah. like you watch survivor and they're looking at the people doing whatever the heck they do on this island and in the background you hear like yeah yeah right that was me yeah yeah, yeah. Cool. but <laughs> i wasn't exactly top dog there so it was like in the middle of the night and i remember this because it was at um uh remote control it's uh hans zimmer's studio okay um big composer like mm -hmm top of the top man but yeah. he owns this whole like property and he leases it's genius he mm -hmm. leases out 
these offices to other composers yeah and they have access to everything it's it's brilliant this was the first season of game of thrones oh wow the thrones guys who were from england were in the kitchen like at the same time as us watching yeah. like a, a a football so soccer sorry yeah yeah match that was going on in, like in the uk and they were just like drinking and and ha- like having an awesome time and they had like they were telling us how they would get the stuff like the TV cut on like a Wednesday and the show came out on a Sunday. So they would basically live there for yeah. a few days, just churning this stuff out. It was awesome. So yeah, you get what you get and you don't yeah. throw it. That's yeah. Well, tell me more about the LA percussion quartet and who's part of it and what yeah, the focus man. of that group is. So while we're kind of, I'm not going to say done. We're just a uh, on a Since pause. 2020, yeah. We haven't really done much. Well, Justin lives in New Zealand, makes mm. it a little difficult. Yeah. Uh, he's been there. He's a he's a full professor in um University of Canterbury in Christchurch. Mm. And we did a tour of New Zealand r- the fall before COVID. So late 2019. Premiered yeah. La Concerto with an orchestra. And that was our last kind of hurrah in a way. Because we have I think we have like 30 kids between the four of us now, and or at least it feels that way. <laughs> Other jobs, like Nick's a full professor here in LA at Chapman, and and Matt runs seemingly runs like 85 nonprofit arts groups. He's insane. <laughs> um, he's getting really into uh, like arts um, management, and but also like the curatorial side. Mm. Um, and so we existed out here for a while i'm not an original member um i'm like when i moved to the city i kind of subbed with them for something and then like a bad rash they couldn't get rid of me Mm. but we've released a number of cds uh we've premiered tons of works commissioned a ton and have also done a lot of interesting projects in la in the new music scene and if you saw just, it was either yesterday or the day before in the New York Times, there's an article about how L.A. has become this, like, new music epicenter of the United mm. States. Now, I think it's all BS. Like, every place has great centers. But mm-hmm. I think what they're talking about is how in the last number of years, many groups and organizations have um, flourished out here, pushing boundaries from chamber opera, which has been probably one of the biggest ones I've noticed and been a part of chamber opera. It's just, it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And so LAPQ, we do these really cool projects. I remember like for the Phil, um, we did Lou Harrison opera, young Caesar Mm. and the principal Matt Howard knows us well, and he's incredibly generous with work in the city. Um, He's like, Hey, it's a, like it's played on Harrison instruments right? mm. shipped yeah. in from the rare instrument museum. And you guys specialize in West coast <laughs> percussion. Mm-hmm. How about you be the, how about you play it? It's awesome. And, and those are, those are a lot of the projects we got to do in addition to commissioning a ton and recording mm. a lot. So we, yeah, it was, it was fun. Yeah. None of us ever got arrested, which is good. Wow, I didn't know Easy. that was a goal. It, well, I don't know if it was a goal. I think it was it was in our nonprofit charter, like you know. Oh, smart. So yeah. Yes. Yeah. Nice. 
Oh, yeah, it was great. I mean, it, it, for me professionally, it was just amazing because I got, I was new to the city more mm. or less when I joined and they had been out here and already had a lot of strong relationships with people. Yeah. And so I remember within like a few months of joining the group, I was at Bill Kraft's house. Mm. Yeah, nice. yeah, yes. Who just, I mean, it's been a year, I think, since he passed. Yeah. Um, I was at his house. I'm like, this guy. Yeah. Like, this is Bill Kraft. French sweet. Come on. Yeah. Now. <laughs> yes, man. And it like I had to bring my daughter, who was, I think, two or three, and his wife Joan took her to the backyard with their dog and gave her like it it, it she had like the best time. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, I'm in Bill Kraft's studio with like tons of instruments and we're just tinkering and he's telling me stories about playing doubles with Aaron Copeland and Igor Stravinsky or something like mm. this is awesome. Yeah. 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 Although every other word out of his mouth was something inappropriate. Cause. Oh, well that, that is, that just ups the entertainment factor. It, the best. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's great. Yeah. I would want to know how, uh, what was Stravinsky's backhand? Was it like any good or could you serve to that side all the time? Like, what? That's, see, these are, these are the questions, man. Yeah. Uh, do you know, do you know, Bill actually premiere, he was the percussionist in the U S premiere of El Estuar. Oh, wow. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's, he's had like, he was in the LA, like he, he was a percussionist for a whole career mm-hmm. and then a composer yeah. for like a whole career. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. And the stories and the house, I mean, it, it's like a museum, all the pictures and yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. But that, that was one of the, to me, like one of the most fun benefits of the group was all of the, the collaborative projects just got to work with such cool people. All right. Well, Corey, let's back up. Where did you grow up? Oh, geez. Uh, Virginia. Where? Springfield, outside D.C. Okay. Gotcha. Do you have any family members in the arts? Nope. Just just you? Yep. <laughs> so how, how did you get the percussion bug then? I played piano. I liked it. Oh, I had to pick an instrument, I think, and I didn't want one where I had to breathe. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right? Yeah, so it's viol- so it's strings or percussion then basically at that point. Pretty much. Yeah. And I I think my brother is older and he was in band and I think we saw a, a like a concert and I saw the xylophone is playing something I'm like I can do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It wasn't exactly a great story. I just kind of fell into it, I suppose. Yeah, I got gotcha. Did were you either taking lessons or were you just was there like a big band or yeah, jazz I, or school, other components there. Yeah, the high school had a, a huge band program. Mm-hmm. Um, it was excellent, excellent band program, and the schools in that area, Fairfax County, were staffed pretty much with arm with military band. Yeah, personnel. So yes. the education level, the training was pretty top notch. Um, I eventually ended up at. Uh, with the National Symphony at the Kennedy Center doing a fellowship program and studying with someone there as well. So I had an army band teacher um, and a symphony teacher. So that was a, uh, that was pretty nice. Yeah. What was there a big marching component? Yeah. 
<laughs> uh oh. I think we marched 300, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and very competitive? Awesome. No, that's the thing. Ah. Um, our band director, so we did the stuff in Virginia you just did, mm-hmm. but it was all like for for ratings and a couple competitions, but he, our band director loved concert band. Mm. And he figured to have the best concert band, i.e. funding and students and support, you yeah. have the marching band. Right. And so that was pretty cool because he, he was right about that. At least at that time in that area, mm-hmm. that's how you did it. So the marching band kind of funded the concert band. Which sure. Is what he was like. Yeah, it was, uh, that was fun. Yeah. Um, when you were studying and uh, as well as with the, when you're doing the fellowship, what is your access to instruments? Just the high schools. Okay. Just practice there. Um, I ended up buying a marimba with my bar mitzvah money in the grade. I still have it. I still gig on it. Yeah. What, what, what instrument was it? Yamaha four and a third Rosewood. Oh yeah. 1990. Seven, I think. Okay. I swear that thing sounds exactly the same. <laughs> I've never tuned it, had it tuned. Yeah. It's a good instrument. Talk really about good. Durability. <laughs> yeah. While you were doing all of these music activities, were involved in anything else? Were you doing any sports or student government or um athletes or anything that was filling out your time? Yes, I did okay. everything. I mm-hmm. was uh, I was one of those. Like yeah. what? I I did tennis. I know, I'm pretty sure. I, well, no, I I was valedictorian, so I did all kinds nice. of nice academic stuff. Like you slid that in, like it was, like, yeah, it was there. On top of the class. Yeah, <laughs> like that. I really like math. Um. Uh. Yeah. I I I did a lot. It was more toward junior and senior year that I pared things down and focused on music. And I realized that it's more of what I wanted to do. Yeah. It was also cool in our, in our school. Again, they offered um, two years of music theory, regular and then AP. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, That's great. So so those of us who are really interested, we just, I mean, we just took that stuff and ran. Oh, that's fantastic. Did did you, did you get to give a speech at graduation? Um, Your valedictorian speech? Don't they usually... You don't remember? No, not ringing a bell. I don't know if I gave it or they. It, we had it was such a large school, man. I feel like <laughs> I, I uh, <laughs> feels like eight hundred years ago. Right. Things <laughs> that I blocked out of my memory. What are you doing to me? You're bringing these out of me. <laughs> Start having flashbacks. How do you end up knowing about? Northwestern, right? That's where you went to undergrad. Oh, my sticks. Oh, the ma- the mallets themselves. The mallets. Yes. Talk about marketing that worked. Yeah, and this was when Burrett was with Innovative, right? When he switched to Malatech, and so I had a pair of the old Innovative blue Michael Burrett soloists, and I asked my mm-hmm. teacher one day, I was like, "Who is this?" Yeah. Like I know it's a name. Like who is this guy? And they're like, "Oh," yeah. and they told me. Was there any culture shock moving to the Chicago area? Not really in terms of we were, 
we're on campus and the music program there is so intense. Yeah. Probably like most other conservatory type places. It's kind of like a conservatory within the university. Right. Even though it's, it's a regular college. Um, we were, I mean, geez, man, that was like, it was 18 hour plus days. Like you do everything, your classes, all the ensembles, the rehearsals, and then you would practice from like 11 at night to three in the morning or something. Mm -hmm. Just had to get it in. Um, yeah. So that was cool. It was basically just four years of playing and performing, honestly. Yeah. Did you feel like, I, I know you talked about how it, you know, not necessarily related to much of what you're doing now, aside from just kind of shoring up your, your percussion abilities, but what was it like just kind of not just with Burt, but with all the other people that you were around at that time must've been that pretty was really cool. I mean, yeah. honestly, I, I, I truly feel, and I, I remember um, Burt talking about this from his Eastman days and how, how mm -hmm. Beck sort of did it. And people talk about Beck's teaching specifically and they go, yeah, it was good. Yeah, it was it was fine, but the community <laughs> we learned from each other. Yeah, and that's that's pretty much exactly it in a nutshell. Um, it's almost like the professor curates the the vibe, and then yeah. we work together constantly. I mean, constantly. Yeah, to the point where I know way too much about David Skidmore, and he knows way too much about me. I mean, Rob Dylan and I, do you know Rob Dylan? Yeah. Okay. I, I, I met him a couple so of times. He had transferred. Yeah. He was a sophomore. He had transferred from Indiana and I was a freshman. We're in like new student orientation. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm like 17 or 18. He's 18. And we're like, hi. He's like, hi. We're like, Hey, okay. I guess we're friends. We play drums. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and that's and how it is. <laughs> that's, that's how it is. Uh, but when you have those kinds of students who are just open. I, th I think when I look back at my time in the Burt studio with uh, Jim Ross, who taught the orchestral side, yeah. Ruben Alvarez, rest in peace, uh, did the Latin percussion and hand drums. Paul Wertico did drum set, but honestly, we didn't really do drum set. And Paul, Paul lives on a different planet, um, <laughs> rightfully so. When I, when I look at that, like, Everyone who came out of those years, in my mind, can obviously play percussion, mm -hmm. but Burt taught us to use our mind a bit more and think a little outside the box. Now, he didn't mandate that we do that, and he had no problem whatsoever if you wanted to be an orchestral percussionist. Great. Yep. I'll help you do that. Or this, or that. Right. Or you don't know yet. Cool. Let's just keep keep playing. Right. Um, and that that sort of overall culture was was really nice. It was just a very open culture, a lot of experimentation with instruments and with just I don't know, just you just try things and see what worked and what didn't work. Yeah. Well, what you're saying jives with what I've heard about not just Bert but but John H. Beck about right. the community that basically you're you're learning from everybody and you're around like the best players in all instruments it's not just the percussionists who are who are tearing uh, yeah, it up i didn't even mention 
the trumpet studio at that time at Northwest. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Ridiculous. Um, and so, yeah, you learn from those people and they teach you, you teach them. And cause you're with them much more than you're with the teacher. Yeah. Who might just point out, Oh, you rushed and measure 34. You're like, okay, thanks. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. No, I, I, I gotcha. <laughs> From is it from there that you go to uh, Australia? Yeah. So how do you know about that? That so keep in mind this is a I'm still pre-internet at this. Or yeah, yeah. Starting. Mm-hmm. Jeez. Ugh. Date us, man. Um. So I a goal of mine was to go abroad mm-hmm. since I was a little kid. It just okay. that was just a plain goal of mine. So I was looking. So Burt's like one of his best friends who was there constantly was Anders Ostrand, mm-hmm. a Swedish uh, vibraphonist, improviser, uh, jack of all trades, percussionist. Yeah. And he was around a lot uh, at Northwestern and to the point where a student who is a few years older than me, Don Nichols, actually had a Fulbright to study with him mm. in Sweden for a year. And I was looking at that, but Anders um, wasn't taking students but I had taken lessons from him and he taught me some improvisation. So then I get a phone call. This is, keep in mind, this is not a cell phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Phones are still attached to the walls at this point. Yeah. And it's Burrett and he goes, Hey, I passed the phone to Anders. I'm like what? <laughs> and Anders says, I just got back from Geneva where I judged that, you know, that Geneva concourse percussion thingy, there's like some annual or every other year percussion com- competition. Is it the Trump? It's like that, or maybe okay. it is that it's one of those, right? Okay. Gotcha. And at the time it was, it was a, it was a bigger one. Ayun um, Quang had won it like a little bit before that or something. Awesome. And he goes, Hey, there's a judge there who just started teaching her name's Vanessa Tomlinson. She teaches in Australia. You gotta go. Mm. I'm like, what? It's like, just trust me. I did it. <laughs> I can't, I mean, it was nuts. I did it. And best decision I made in my life, besides marrying my wife. That's it's on record. <laughs> no, honestly, man, it, it, he was so right because it, it was uh it was just amazing. Well, what's the process of even making that happen? Because I would assume there's like student visas involved. There's, yep. I mean, so how how did, what was kind of the, okay, you say, I get in touch with Vanessa and okay, we can make it work. And then you're like, okay, now what? Yeah. So well, what's like the now what? It's an audition tape. So I had to, I, I filmed myself on a VHS, mm-hmm. people. Yeah. And then I had to go to a part of Chicago and they were basically all the Indian shops and mm. they would convert your VHS because in that region, they mm-hmm. read differently. Yeah. They're like the DVD or it was, it was just bananas. Yeah. Everything about it was nuts. And, but she had just started teaching there. Um, and so she probably didn't even look at my tape. She probably just said yes. Cause she needed another body. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I, went to the Australian embassy. Mm. It, it took months, but uh, they're a half a year. Bef- so they start school in January, February. Right. Yeah. So I graduated in June and had 
that extra time. And then, yeah, man, I did it sight unseen. I had a ticket, mm-hmm. packed, packed a bag, and yeah, <laughs> seriously, just went over there. And uh, it's awesome, just awesome. Um, I mean, I still go there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vanessa comes here, We've seen our kids grow up now, and she's a member of the family, man. She's unbelievable artist and everyone needs to check out what she does i've never met anyone like like her pianos and i'm serious like you gotta you gotta check out what she does she pushes the boundaries so much it's ridiculous awesome what are the things you have to adjust to aside from everything well except for the language you don't have to you don't have to learn new language i didn't go to a yeah i mean i I picked a commonwealth country yes (laughs) wasn't that terribly difficult it was just, uh, you know, first time being away or on your own. Because even in that, uh, the undergrad closed, it, it, you're still on campus. You're still part of this massive thing. Over there, it was just, you know, I had to get into find roommates and mm-hmm. ended up with these just traditional, amazing roommates who are super Australian and taught me everything there is to know about Australian culture. <laughs> i.e. drinking. Um, yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, was, it was great. I I can't, for the people I know that I meet who have studied abroad or done anything like that, especially yeah. in music or the arts, it is the most transformative um, experience. No, I've never met anyone who comes back from it saying like, well, that was a waste of a year. Like, right. I've yeah. never, never heard anyone say that. And so for me, I was able to go from that to Italy, basically directly for another year. And so two years of living abroad, um, performing, working, um, it was really cool. So two years total for Australia and Italy. Yeah. Yep. Gotcha. More or less. So, oh no! It's like two or two plus, something like that. Yeah. Is when you start studying with Vanessa, is there a way that because her field is different, or you know, in terms of the you know the more improvised theatrical yeah side, was there a way that she just kind of threw you in the fire and been like, "Here's yeah. what we're doing." Yeah. Corporel, what was that? I had to do corporal right off the bat. Oh wow. And she gave me a bunch of, uh, she really, I mean, what happened was I went from the percussion world repertoire Mm -hmm. to the rest of the world repertoire. Yeah. Um, And this is something I rail against when I do podcasts and talk to people about percussion. Sure. Um, I am very outspoken critic of the percussion composer music. Ah. Very outspoken. Well, I guess it's not that outspoken. It's pretty easy from my point of view. I, I think it's a technical etude and I think it has no place on a recital stage. Anyway, uh, she gave me, no, she, she would throw at me um, the other rep that I didn't even know existed. Yeah. Honestly, like some of it I did, like I knew, I knew some Stuart's Saunders Smith stuff mm-hmm. and um, I knew the Jevsky to the earth, like some of the more, uh, popular mainstream ones but then i started she started throwing these things at me i'm like what the what 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 and so it was just eye-opening to see this whole other side of repertoire that mm-hmm. i 
and I went to a great school, mm-hmm. right? But yeah. you can't, I think what I've learned from this is you can't do everything. Yeah, of course You can't not. do everything. Yeah. And you can't be responsible for knowing everything. You have to put yourself in situations where you can then be exposed to more and more so that you learn more and more. Yeah. It's as simple as that. You can't fault someone for not knowing something if they haven't experienced it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what you do with that information, that is your responsibility. So it was, it was really cool. She just threw me in and was like, here you go. Have fun. Uh, now for the news, you know that piece? This is a great piece. It's a great piece Don't... for an introductory improvisation. It's a, it's for tape, mm-hmm. um, but the tape is, it has a pulse that goes constantly and it's recorded uh, Vietnamese um, radio broadcasts. Okay. And he's notated some of it and then they're like sections. And then what you kind of do is you play with it and improvise with it as mm-hmm. each section changes, the male voice, the female voice, etc. It's like a gateway piece. Mm. You come out of that one on the other side of improvisation going, whoa, sweet. Um, great. It's, I, I highly recommend that. And then, yeah, that and then it just became like opening Pandora's box of yeah. expensive art pieces. <laughs> yeah. Clothing yeah. optional pieces. Those oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Did you you pick the option that was not clothing? I'm gonna guess, or in different countries, I've yeah, not in the <laughs> U.S. because you'll get arrested here. Yeah, yeah. Unless you have people sign a sign a form. Yeah. But no, it's just it was different kind of kind of a, a approach to art and mm-hmm. where before I was percussion is percussion. Yeah. And then I learned that percussion is the tool to create the art. Those are sort of the the things like Bur- uh, the way I describe it is Burrett taught me how to be a percussionist. Vanessa taught me how to be an artist. Mm. Simple as that. Um, you can't have one without the other, though. You can't just skip around. So right. uh, it was very, like I said, and have said throughout this, um, I have had excellent teachers. Yeah. Start when you go to Italy. What's the what's the impetus to what? what how do you even know about that? I was in Australia and uh-huh. uh, what happened was the, this Institute in Italy, mm-hmm. the head of music there was writing a piece for the following years, Australia, something, something okay. in Australia featuring a friend of mine out um, named William Barton, who is sort of the world's didgeridoo expert. Okay. And he um, is this amazing Aboriginal musician artist person who has made it his mission to bring uh, the didgeridoo into western classical music and this whole piece which featured satellites uh of it was called credo and it was basically about there were people in um jerusalem and playing together in these satellite feeds Mm -hmm. and um Catholic Protestants in Belfast, because, you know, we didn't have FaceTime. It would have been a lot easier, you know? They had to actually get satellites involved. So it was this huge project, and he needed a few percussionists to be soloists. Mm. When I say soloists, I mean, there were a lot of soloists. It was, it's a concert length, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was two hours, an hour and a half long. 
And so he came and told us about the program and Vanessa sent a couple of us or a few of us over to audition for him. And then I end up in Italy. Yeah. And for when I was there, so obviously the end of that project was the huge thing in Australia, Mm -hmm. but the rest of the year, they just, this play, it's amazing. They just pay for you and give you money and opportunity. And they put you up in flats in this small town in Italy. And there, there were 40 of us and we were at the age 23 and 24 in all different disciplines. My best friend was a, a graffiti artist, kind of like mm. Banksy, yeah. and, but from Romania. Mm. We actually tagged the Venice train station once with a spilled coffee cup that went into the water. And then we had to run from the Italian police. It, we didn't get caught because they probably just, they went like, yeah, whatever, forget about it. It was just a wild year. We we worked for the UN. We created uh, ad campaigns or all kinds of uh, runway shows and art biennales and fashion. This because when you think about those things, there's usually an, a visual element. There's a sound element, and or an industrial element. And so the designers we all kind of work together to create these multimedia presentations, and that's where. One day I wrote The Lost Bicycle because mm. I was like inundated with all this stuff. And then I was just thinking, man, I just don't know. I don't know. Like I, I'm good at doing this stuff because I, I as a performer, I'm I'm a muse for these people. Mm-hmm. Like they need to find someone who will do the crazy stuff they want them to do. That's me. But for my own creative work, I'm like, yeah, I don't think this is it. And then I wrote a story. There you go. Where in Italy were you? Uh, the town was Treviso. It was about a 20-minute ride from Venice. So a, kind of a suburb of, of Venice. Gotcha. How was your Italian during that year? Uh, I speak a little bit of Spanish, so it was like Spitalian? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I know. It's like I could kind of – they, they kind of get what you're saying if you're – you speak Spanish. They're, very, they're similar. There's con- yes. conjugations the same, and – uh yeah they took pity on a 23 24 year old guy who's struggling to communicate i want a coffee right yeah well how did you were you just using like public transportation and stuff to and walking around was it was city walkable and the city is walkable and the uh institute was at the uh the headquarters of the company Mm which we would take a bus to. So it's kind of kind of like we were we were we were paid but mm-hmm. then when we were there we had to do whatever projects the bosses sort of came up with. Yeah. So we were just kind of it was almost like this weird factory-esque thing we would get in a bus, get off and like walk in as if we were going in an assembly line, but then we would just be there to create. It was yeah. Yeah. Go European art. <laughs> Hooray, socialist tendencies. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> Do you go to Kansas after that? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that happened. <laughs> I got my doctorate from there, but I never had a teacher. I was going to ask when you were there, because I know I that program has been. Nope. It's a... oh, it's... Sorry. My very last year when I defended... Uh, mm-hmm. Jihei was there. Okay. 
but I mean, she didn't choose me. Mm-hmm. And while I think she's a lovely person and oh my God, can she play? That's like one of the few people I think can actually, my dogs, play the marimba, like really play it. Yeah. Um, we just don't align aesthetically. It mm-hmm. just wasn't the same. But but yeah, I had no teacher, but I had funding. So that's why I created the storytelling project there. Yeah. Like I had created that one story, yeah. but the whole idea of it going further happened when I was there without a teacher and a lot of time and a lot of access and like, okay, what am I going to do? Here we go. Yeah. What was it? What was it like being back in the States? Did you miss being overseas? Yeah, I did. But the, the thing about that overseas thing, especially in those years is it's, it's just very nomadic. Um, yeah. There aren't really destinations. There's mm-hmm. just sort of roads and you just kind of go. And I had done that for a bit. Um, yeah. It was really fun. Well, Kansas is a culture shock in some ways for true. people in this country. Yeah. And you were and you were in Lawrence, which is like Which is a, yes, the place <laughs> apparently it's like Austin, Texas, or yeah. Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I know, man. I know. So yeah, that that was different, but um, that the storytelling thing is really what what happened because uh, mm-hmm. I just found my way to that. I had the space, and that's where I composed a lot of stuff and mm-hmm. and brought that to kind of that next level. Yeah, I I do. Just one last thing on that is that were you, were you there? Were you going to get? Were you, was the plan? For your career prior to going there, like I'm, I'm going to just go into the college teaching thing. That's like, yep. yeah, hundred percent, all in. And then this happens. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have the best quote unquote education on paper, but then I look at what I was able to create and do, and learn how to fend for myself. Yeah. I became a, a freelancer right off the bat. I had no teacher. So everything I did was on my own. I was touring. Um, I went to numerous countries at that time doing mm. chamber work and solo work. And that all just taught me how to be an individual and advocate for for myself. So things happen for a reason, I suppose. So if I had a teacher, I might not have done any of this. And Yeah. You know, it's certainly possible. No, yeah. not that anything's wrong or bad about that. I, I, it's just different. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. Or maybe I'd right. be composing open fifth marimba solos. You never know. It's always possible. Hey? It's possible. All right. Well, I finish out with a segment called "Random Ask Questions." Random Ask Questions. Ass a s s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I'm almost not, it's, it, I don't know that it's even worth it to ask the first question. Cause my usual first question is um, an issue in percussion uh, education or percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts. Percussion composer pieces, <laughs> specifically the marimba ones that are basically just like, I call it marimba diarrhea. It's just, uh, yeah. 
but now it's it's spreading. It's not just marimba diarrhea. Now it's like multi diarrhea. Um, it's it's just yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Hey, I think those pieces have a place. Yeah. They absolutely have a place. My issue is when they're purported to be at the level of dissertation worthy research, or if you have a a solo recital on Carnegie Hall. I'm not playing that stuff. Would you think a pianist would play Cherney exercises? Remember those or the little well, or Hannon? I mean, I, I would play the Hannon exercises. Yeah, Hannon. You're like, oh, Carnegie Hall Saturday. Yep, do it. That's Let's do it. how I equate it. I'm not trying to. I, I'm trying to make a point. I'm trying to be like a little bit of an asshole to make a point. Sure, but my point remains which is there's a place for all of that stuff yeah an absolute learn i mean they are so great to learn on yeah all those pieces there's so much to learn but they're they're tools they're pieces of a bigger thing so that yeah. is my yes gotcha. easily my pet peeve the question I usually follow up with you've somewhat answered but i am curious i'm going to kind of rephrase it which has to do with um kind of issues of inclusion diversity equity but I, I, I'm more thinking about what you figure out when you've, if you, when you've played your concerts for mostly if Spanish-speaking audiences, or you know, when you're in these environments where you're definitely the minority, what have you kind of figured out or learned about yourself? Stories, you got to be careful. Mm -hmm. and you need to listen. Yeah. So I try to tell story. What one reason that I've kind of avoided some of the uh, noise of the last few years of stuff mm -hmm. is that my program involves everything. I tell stories from everywhere and yeah. I've always had context to my stories. Um, however, there are times where the, that crosses a line or a kid will raise their hand or a parent or a teacher or a staff member at a place saw me play a story and they said that they they sent me a message about how something was insensitive in it. And then we had a, a conversation about it and I didn't, I didn't realize. Mm. So I think being a storyteller, because uh, <laughs> you can't hide your words there. It's right. a story. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's about the conversation and you just need to listen to what people say. And it's very easy to edit stories. It's very easy to change things. Yeah. It's super easy. Um, I, in my new stories, I try really hard to, um, use different pronouns. So my characters, mm -hmm. uh, first of all, female protagonist, cause my wife and daughter will destroy me if, if not, but also yeah. they, him, her, it, it, it's very easy. But then when you look at the literature, it's all he, 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 right, and yeah. so little changes like that. But I get that from the audiences. I get that from from people and so you just being open to a conversation and listening yeah uh, results in some good changes well hopefully good changes yeah yeah i gotcha all right well other questions definitely on the more fun side has anyone ever nailed an impression of you and if so how'd they do it oh i hope so i know but i i i would love that None of the third coast guys have impressions of you. 
Maybe they do. I mean, the the LAPQ guys make fun of me in other ways. Oh, I see. Like constantly. I'm like I'm like the butt of the jokes. But impressions. Yeah. See, I bet I bet yeah, I bet they're out there. Yeah. Don't feel shy, people. Bring it on. <laughs> awesome. What is your biggest kitchen mess up? <laughs> Oh, my wife will love this one. Okay, we weren't married yet. Mm-hmm. We were living in Chicago, and I was cooking this dinner. I was like, I'm over this. I, I got this. Yeah. Like a casserole. And so I kind of wasn't knowledgeable enough about stuff. It was like a chicken casserole with rice and vegetables. Great. Worcestershire sauce. I don't know how to say it. Everyone uh-huh. knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. The W one. Right. Well, apparently that, that stuff's strong. <laughs> yes. You did not. Okay. I put in, I believe a cup or more. Oh my God. <laughs> like 45 minutes in the oven. And she walks into the apartment and starts like gagging basically. Yeah. I mean, she said yes when I proposed later. So I, not that night, but you yes. know, <laughs> She also hates noise and she married a drummer. So all this stuff to say, it couldn't have been that big of a failure. Um, <laughs> it was absolutely disgusting for the record. <laughs> disgusting. You um, know, those have like the, the spout where it's like, I do a know a little that. bit comes out. <laughs> I took that off. Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, it wasn't going fast enough. Right, of course. <laughs> I'm like, dude, I need so much of this. This is, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense now. Yeah. <laughs> they were right, it turns out. Yeah, yeah. It turns out the Worcester <laughs> sauce people know what they're talking about. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. Well, on the, uh, on the other side, is there, do you have a kitchen specialty? Yes, I do. Uh, I like Korean food a lot mm. and I cook this spicy tofu crumble. Ooh. That right. is delicious to where even my kids who are kids like it. So nice. Yeah, it's good. All right. What is a great movie and what is a terrible movie? Aladdin is the greatest movie ever, the one with Robin Williams. Mm. Uh classic. Yep. Can't get enough of that. A what movie? A bad a one? terrible movie. <laughs> you want me to throw a dart? I mean... You think like really disappointing is another way you could just think of that. I feel like the Fast and the Furious movies are just terrible. Yet, also kind of awesome. <laughs> I see. I I'm on the awesome side. I think they're a lot of fun. Oh, I think they're fun, but I mean, I think they're terrible movies. Oh oh, yeah, yeah. No, that poor acting, no story. It's not, but it doesn't matter. That's that's sort of the point. Yeah, and I kind of, I kind of am jealous that he's discovered this format. where it's not important. Like the storyline, the act, like just hot people doing cool ass things in cars yes yeah damn that's it it's magic i mean he could just like isn't he groot like i am groot right isn't he the voice of groot like he could just do that for the whole stinking oh yeah 
and no one Vin would Diesel. care. Yeah. It yeah. kind of sounds like he's doing that anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty And great. I always want a Corona after watching those movies. I don't <laughs> <laughs> Do you start wearing chains after or also? I, wearing... <laughs> <laughs> I like the, yeah. Yeah. I just, yeah. I just like, yeah. It's, yeah. It's amazing. That's I, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What's a favorite book? Dao De Jing. Uh, what is that? So the Dao De Jing by uh, Lao Tzu, which is Taoism, uh, oh. the the main principle book, but translated by Ursula Le, Le Guin. Mm. Oh wow! Really? Yeah. Awesome. What, what's any beat any beatnik for me? Any beatnik stuff from the nineteen fifties and sixties? Oh, okay. On the road and Howl and yeah. stuff like that. Arawak, Burroughs. Yeah, honestly, a Vonnegut. A, yeah. That kind of dystopian, cool writing. Yeah. I read Naked Lunch recently. And oh, I Naked Lunch, yeah. I still don't really know. I don't I don't think I have an idea. Do you know where that guy is from or lived? No, where? Lawrence, Kansas. And I know this. Because so he, because a friend of mine came from Brooklyn. He was writing an experimental opera about Burroughs. Yeah, and the Burroughs house was like in my neighborhood. Yeah, went there. It was the most surreal experience. Like people still gather and they have these lunches. They gave me one of his bullets. He used to go in the back because he. The reason why he moved there is it was close to Kansas City where there was a methadone clinic. Mm, yeah, that makes and sense. He would then get high and shoot his gun in the backyard, and they yeah. gave me one of the bullets. Yeah, naked lunch, man. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's a, yeah, <laughs> it's that's a thing. Awesome. It's, it's a, a real thing. thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thing. Yeah. Awesome. Work orange. Oh man. Yeah. That oh thing. yeah. Well, that I, I mean, those are those aren't are those. Beat related, or no, just kind of from that little, from that generation. From the generation, I guess. Yeah. Um, oh, Catch twenty two is amazing. That's yeah. Nathaniel Heller, Yosarian. Yes, major, major, major. Yes. Yeah. And if if people are watching and they don't know what we're talking about, I was going to say we're just dorks, but use the Google machine. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, but more importantly, just just read the books because they're really good books. They're very good books. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. All right, uh, you've traveled a lot of places, but where's somewhere you have not traveled to yet that you still want to get to? Anywhere in Africa, mm. specifically Senegal or Ghana. It's where my roommate. When I was in Italy, my roommate was a Senegalese. Uh, Drum maker, band leader, Griot, mm. which is coincidentally, Griot is a storyteller who yeah. uses drums, right? And now that's mm-hmm. what I do. Go figure. Um, I would love to to go there. Just haven't had a chance yet. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, if you head back to um, the Virginia area, if you have family there or anything, is there some place you need to eat so that you feel like, all right, I'm back? Uh, it's the suburbs, so no. <laughs> There's nothing original there. <laughs> Chilies. <laughs> yeah. We got Applebee's. We got Chilies. Olive Garden. Take your pick. Nope. 
No, no DC cuisine or Northern Virginia cuisine of note. No, I mean, that area has changed a ton. There's a lot of great stuff now. I just, but nothing from when I was little. The, the only thing I remember that was kind of cool is um, uh, Five Guys. You know that? Yeah. Yep. Their original one was in the area. Okay. Um, this is way, way before they franchised or became mm-hmm. bigger. And yeah, that was like a little hole in the wall place where you would go in and they had boxes of peanuts. Yep. Mm-hmm. Still there. The peanuts, throw the shells on the ground. Yeah. And order. And while well, you waited and they yeah. had a sign on the door that said like, if you have a peanut allergy, like this is not your place. This is not your place. Yeah. <laughs> this is true. God bless the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. Do you, other question, do you have a sports fandom? No. I enjoy watching things. Mm-hmm. I like current events, so that's more how I pay attention to things. I'm not a fan of anything in particular. Mm. Gotcha. Uh, if you meet someone, and we may have covered this, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. You meet someone, and they say, I like blank whatever that is and like and it's pretty obscure but if you heard that and you'd immediately go all right we're good what's that for you yeah like they're like oh i like this thing whatever this thing is and you'd immediately be like okay like <laughs> we're friends now basically because experimental, of- <laughs> experimental jazz experimental jazz <laughs> that's a joke in, a, in our family because whenever i'm doing all the weird ass stuff i do sound wise my daughter's you know she's She's 14 now and she's grown up with this. Yeah, yeah. So she just tells her friends, like, dad's just doing his weird experimental jazz thing. Nice. <laughs> so if anyone knows what experimental jazz actually is, you're okay in my book. <laughs> <laughs> I like how your daughter's just reduced your career to, <laughs> to that. <laughs> yeah. Weird ass experimental jazz. Like, that's <laughs> not what I'm doing. <laughs> Educate yourself. Here's some Mingus. Come yeah. on. Yeah. Oh, that's good. <laughs> All right. Last couple of questions. Uh, strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? There, there are a few. I bet um, there are. <laughs> well, the this one of the strangest ones, the ones that people might find interesting, is um, I played a celebrity party around christmas holiday time yeah and it was at buster keaton's old estate in beverly hills oh wow awesome and i was hired to improvise on the christmas tree is that a film like improvise the christmas like on the christmas tree oh wow the ornament like whatever yeah they just that's what i was hired to do three sets 45 minutes each Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. In the living room of this giant estate place where it, like in the other room, they had the food. And yep. I mean, it was, it was like a whole thing. <laughs> I, I rock up to this place and there's, there's a guy dressed as a goat dancing in a fountain. Mm. That was the first thing I saw. The, um, that's, there, it, it's like, so you're already like, okay, this is, this is where we're at. <laughs> now, granted this place was like the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The sure. art like rivaled that of a museum in the, they had a Picasso in the bathroom. So I'm like peeing and there's a Picasso right there. Yeah. Um, but the whole Kardashian Jenner family came. Oh my gosh. <laughs> sat 
they sat on the couch in front of the Christmas tree while they were eating. Yeah. They all like at the same time, it was like choreographed. They pull out their phones. It was like, like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They looked miserable. Um, but Dustin Hoffman and, uh, Paul Reiser, two old Jewish, like comedian actors, right. They were sitting, they came down after and, it was just hilarious because they talked about their grandkids and their aches and pains. Mm. They're like, Oh my, my, my knee's been Paul, my knee's really bothering me. Ha ah, well my elbow. And then like my grandkid. And it's like, yeah, it's like my old Jewish grandparents. Yeah. And then they left Dustin Hoffman turned around and he like gave me a thumbs up. So I got a thumbs up from Dustin Hoffman. The number of like, it was nuts. The Hadids were there. Jimmy Kimball, I guess, is their next door neighbor. He rocked ah. up. It was so bizarre. And I actually get paid more for a storytelling performance than I did for this. Ah. <laughs> yeah, everyone's like, wow, you must have made like so much money. Like, no, no, I did not. <laughs> but I know how to improvise a Christmas tree. Three sets. Three sets. <laughs> no food. Foods for the helpers in the other room. Ah, not for yeah. the talent, apparently. Ta- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was bizarre. Yeah, that's that's crazy. And that, those are just some of the some of the stories from that. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah we had to put our phones in like a a, a lockbox and yeah, sign NDAs and all that good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Different that's... world. <laughs> All right, Corey, last question. What one piece of art could be movies, music, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently? I have really been into Greek antiquity recently. And looking through all of this quote unquote ancient art. Mm Mm-hmm. And just to find out that we really haven't progressed much at all. <laughs> it's like the same stuff. I, <laughs> they're that yeah, we call it like ancient or primitive. I'm like, I don't really see that, but I've really been enjoying looking at some of these older, uh, specifically sculptures. Mm. And like the subject matter is the same, the, like the abilities are it's it's basically i mean they fit so much into like a little scene everything is representative of something else it's essentially like an entire story Mm -hmm. within a story within a story i mean it's incredibly creative and they did this without any tech technology right right um i think that's pretty cool why 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 were you why (laughs) why uh i went to the getty so the getty museum out here Mm -hmm. the art museum um there are two getty museums there's the getty museum the art museum that has all the regular art and it's it's the huge place with the amazing view but then there's also the getty villa because he started by collecting mainly greek antiquity um, and Mesopotamian art and things like that. And so it's basically just a stockpile of this old stuff. Mm. So I saw that and I was like, wow, I wonder what the story is here. And then come to find out that basically artists were exactly the same. Like, we've, There's really not a whole lot of difference. Yeah. Just 
can do stuff like this mm -hmm. on a computer, but the art's really no different. Yeah. Struggling to get paid, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and just the subject, I mean, it, I really, like, what do they say? Like all this, someone said something about all the different stories have already been told. Yeah. Like all, Nothing, nothing really is new. And so all this new stuff that people are creating or cutting edge of this, I'm like, it's actually kind of been done. You're just, you're reformatting it in a very creative way. And that's totally fine. But yeah, I don't know if how much is, is new. Yeah. And boy, they had like the, we think that our society is like dirty or minds are in the gutter. That stuff is nasty. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Take a moment and research like ancient Rome and ancient Greece in the art and you'll be like, wait, what? Yeah. You think yeah. we're potty mouths now. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You think drummers have like a have like toilet brains? You yeah. should see like ancient philosophers. My yeah. goodness. Yeah. It's wild. So much fun having Corey on the show. I hope he continues to move percussive storytelling forward to bigger and better things and continues to carve out the niche he has already worked very hard to grow. Best of luck going forward, Corey. This week's rave is the 2023 film Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Willem Dafoe, Mark Ruffalo, Rami Youssef, and Christopher Abbott, written by Tony McNamara and directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, now playing in theaters. We've now entered the award season for 2023 films, kicked off by this past week's Golden Globes. And likely in this space in future weeks, you'll hear me discuss many of the leading candidates for these awards. In any case, this one may be in line for some of those awards, and was, in my case, along with my wife, and a packed house in our little arty theater in Columbia, a very enjoyable experience. This movie is somewhat hard to categorize. It's kind of a retelling of Frankenstein, while also being, as Emma Stone partially mentioned in her Best Actress for a Comedy acceptance speech at the Golden Globes, a romantic comedy between a woman and her enjoyment of life. Without giving too much away, Emma plays Bella Baxter, a woman recovered from a near-death experience by Dr. Godwin Baxter, played by Willem Dafoe. He's assisted by student Max McCandless, played by Rami Youssef, who, along with both Mark Ruffalo and Christopher Abbott, play past and future love interests. That's probably enough. The film is written by Tony McNamara, who'd already worked with Stone on the recent live-action adaptation of 101 Dalmatians called Cruella, and the favorite, and the movie is directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, who directed Stone in The Favorite, and in the past has directed some truly wild and unusual films, namely The Lobster, Dogtooth, and The Killing of a Sacred Deer. I don't know that I should, again, go too far in discussing what happens in this movie, aside from telling you that it is really, really funny and really, really far out there. All the folks in the movie are very good. 
particularly Emma Stone, who is assisted well by Mark Ruffalo, who dials it way, way up in this film. The only warning I'd give here is that there is some incredible imagery throughout the film, as well as a number of things that happen very early on, both visually and in dialogue, that will give you an indication to be ready for both anything and everything in this movie. And hold on to your hats, if you wear one. Okay, that's enough there. If you're into an experience, capital E, at the movies, then please check out Poor Things. I hope that you'll be glad you did. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud and Spotify and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and X at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week with our brand new interviews that we've done since the beginning of 2024. Until then.